And yeah, I mean, it like cured my depression because then I was just anxious. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Gender Troubles. I'm Emma Austin. I'm Eva Esmond-Shade. And we majored in gender studies. So you don't have to. We are on Twitter at GenderTroubles1, and we're on Instagram at gender.troubles.pod, and we have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash gender underscore troubles. And Har- uh, Gender Troubles is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Harbinger brings you progressive podcasts from all across Canada, and you can find them at harbingermedianetwork.com. Right on. Uh, so yeah, I think today we're going to talk about the Indian Act in Canada. Yes. Um, and basically talking specifically about gender discrimination within the Indian Act, uh, which is a very long history dating back to the 1850s. So buckle in for a couple hundred years. Of, All right, uh, get in the way back machine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just wanted to go through like a, a few little disclaimers, I guess, before we get into it. Um, so yeah, I'm... Uh, a settler in Canada. I'm white, and by no means uh, should my voice be prioritized in telling this story. Um, I think it is important to discuss this history as settlers mm-hmm. and like to know about it and to share this knowledge with our listeners if you don't know about it. Um, but I definitely understand if you don't want to hear the history from me. Um, the you know, this history, definitely we need to prioritize Indigenous voices. So I'm going to link some great articles by Indigenous authors in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to check those out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also wanted to talk about the word Indian. This isn't a word that we use anymore to describe Indigenous people. Um, we, I think the more accepted term now is Indigenous, mm-hmm. although, you know, I think it it depends on who you're talking to, too. Um, but Definitely, I use the word indigenous. That's the word that I've been used to uh, taught to use, um, and the one that I think is is most uh, acceptable. Um, but when we're talking about the Indian Act, it's still called the Indian Act. It's a piece of legislation that has existed since the 1850s and is still today in in Canada called the Indian Act. Um, and so we still use that language when talking about this like specific piece of legislation. Um, And so I will be using it like throughout the episode when discussing the Indian Act, but um, definitely not a word to continue using Mm -hmm. outside of that context. Mm -hmm. Um, And it definitely has like pejorative connotation. It's a pejorative word now. Yeah. 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 And I think um, speaking from the American side of of the border podcast border. um, Yeah. Also like thinking about how, um, kind of like the history of indigenous people in Turtle Island is taught in like American schools and the language we use in America is much more, we say like Native American. Yeah. Um, and there is also points where I'm quoting people in this podcast and we'll use, they, they use the term Aboriginal, mm-hmm. which was like a thing when I was a kid, like that was kind of like the more socially acceptable term mm-hmm. that was being used to describe indigenous people. But um, yeah, that, that also seems outdated to me and like not a term that we use anymore but I will um at least in one quote I think Mm -hmm. um use use that term because the author of the quote is Mm -hmm. um 
And then one more, one more disclaimer. Um, so I, I talk about non-status a lot. I mm-hmm. referred to non-status people in this episode, but I just wanted to like um, stress that non-status should not be confused with non-indigenous. So there are like many, many people, indigenous people in Canada without status, and they've lost status due to a variety of reasons or never received it because of colonialism anyway (laughs) we'll get into it um but status is something that was invented by a colonial government to identify who is indigenous and who is not and it's a colonial legal category and it shouldn't be misconstrued with um indigeneity Mm -hmm. and you can you can my understanding too and maybe i'm like getting ahead of the episode but is also you could be a like a status Indian and actually not be indigenous at all because you marry into yes. it. Yeah. So they're they're gonna, kind we're of we're gonna talk about it. Two very <laughs> different different very different terms. Um, yeah, definitely De- very different meetings. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've done all of our preambles, <laughs> yes, uh, we'll get into it. Okay. So what is the Indian Act? Uh, so the Indian Act was at its inception a collection of very racist and colonial policies that negatively impacted the lives of Indigenous people across Canada. I'm going to give a brief overview of some of these main policies, but then I'm really going to focus on like sexism and gender discrimination um, that continue to permeate the Indian Act. Um, but yeah, the Indian Act is like a big thing that means a lot of different things and had a lot of different parts mm-hmm. to it. Um, So in 1857, the newly developed Department of Indian Affairs introduced the Gradual Civilization Act, which was as gross as it sounds, Hmm. um, and was later to be known as the Indian Act. And it had the goal of, quote, assimilating First Nations people into sedentary Christian agricultural communities, um, as said by John Malloy. So this saw the removal of tribal band leaders and the imposition of Indian agents onto reserves, and it gave greater power to missionaries and newly imposed band councils. Um, and like status Indians under the age of 16 were mandated to attend residential schools in this period, and indigenous self-governance structures were extinguished. Um, the act controlled when reserve residents could leave and enter the reserve, um, it regulated every act of daily life on the reserve. Uh, the This legislation was responsible also for outlawing, outlawing ceremony and spiritual practices and dances, including the potlatch. And it also allowed settler municipalities to take reserve land for public projects and farming projects, and it made it illegal for Indian bands to access legal counsel and services. Uh, fun fact. I shouldn't say fun fact. It's not fun. Um, The apartheid system of South Africa was taken from Canada. So some of the earliest Indian agents in Canada were from South Africa who came here to learn about our segregation system and brought it back to South Africa. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) Yeah. So it's uh, a, what do you call it? Canadian heritage moment? Those commercials? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So um, Indigenous people could also voluntarily relinquish their status. It was a process called becoming enfranchised. Um, So by becoming enfranchised, Indigenous people earned the right to vote and they became citizens. Um, And then automatic enfranchisement also happened to any Indigenous person who received a university education or served in the military. And it was like framed as this like positive thing. Um, And basically, yeah, just with the goal of sort of... um, uh, 
forcing people into a Canadian identity and a Canadian status. Um, yeah, like a kind of fucked up graduation of like, you have you have reached a certain level of what we deem like settler colonial respectability. And yeah. so we are going to make it seem like it's a good thing mm-hmm. that's happening to you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it was just a goal of assimilation, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in the book, Mohawk Interrupt His Political Life Across the Borders of Settler States, Mohawk author and professor Audra Simpson writes of the Indian Act, the overarching law of Indians in Canada legally made and unmade Indians and their rights in a Western, specifically Victorian, model of patrilineal descent and rule that attempted to or- order their winnowed territories. Hmm. So why is having status important? I found this quote from Indigenous Foundations at UBC that I thought like illustrated why status is having important it, why having status is important. Um, so I'll just read that. Mm-hmm. Um, while Indian status as a legal category is undoubtedly problematic, it is still historically and legally significant. Status acknowledges the unique historical and constitutional relationship Aboriginal peoples have with Canada. For these reasons, attempt to abolish Indian status have been met with wi- widespread resistance. In 1969, in an effort to achieve socioeconomic equality between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians, the federal government proposed to abolish the Indian status altogether. This policy proposal, known as the White Paper, was met with strong resistance from Aboriginal leaders and organizations. Those opposed to the measure claimed that, although status was a government imposition, Indian status acknowledged the distinctive history of Aboriginal peoples in the Canadian state and forced the government to legally acknowledge their obligations to Aboriginal peoples. Aboriginal leaders were concerned that to abolish status would absolve the government of its commitments. Further, to propose abolishing status infers that the eventual assimilation of Aboriginal peoples into mainstream Canadian society is inevitable. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it is like it's a it's an. Uh, made up colonial category but it's also a way in which an important legal category in which indigenous people can advocate for their rights by Mm -hmm. by occupying it right Mm -hmm. totally yeah and it's kind of seems like the 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 kind of the proposal of just getting rid of um the the indian act would is kind of like a i don't see color way of dealing with like, like a way of understanding discrimination as if that's not, you know, going to automatically, you know, allow reservations to have clean drinking water and not have, mm-hmm. you know, nation's lands taken over for fucking pipelines or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and it's like at this point, like it's too late. Like you made the category mm-hmm. and then you've been like violent toward this group of people for, you know – a couple hundred years and you can't just go and be like okay well we'll just get rid of the category it's like no 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 now you you know you have to pay some reparations yes, and like yeah. do some work for like the however many years of f- fucked upness mm-hmm. you know um so yeah um so yeah uh getting into like the gender discrimination part of it um In the early version of the Indian Act, the people who were considered to be Indian were defined as, quote, a male Indian, the wife of a male Indian, or the child of a male Indian. So you can see where we're going here. Ah, yes. So from 1876 to 1985, 110, 109 years, 
math. Um, Indigenous women had no ability or limited ability to pass on their status to their children without being married to an Indigenous man. So patrilineage is the key word when understanding Mm -hmm. gender discrimination in the Indian Act. Um, So patrilineage means an individual is defined as having Indian status only if their father or husband was status. This meant that Indigenous women who married non-status men lost their status. And the loss of status wasn't just a symbolic thing. This often meant that women had to leave the reserve in their community, as only people with status were allowed to live on the reserve. And patrilineage also meant that if a status man married a non-status woman, aka like a white settler woman, Mm -hmm. she would gain Indian status Mm -hmm. um, and be able to move on to the reserve. Um, So once a woman lost her status by marrying uh, a non-status man, she was prevented from passing Indian status onto her children. So any child of an indigenous woman who married a non-indigenous man was not able to be considered a status Indian. So this was called the marrying out rule. And it's known as Section 12.1b in the Indian Act, Mm. which I'll reference later too. Are you familiar with Canadian superstar Shania Twain? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah, Canadian superstar Shania Twain, uh, both her biological parents were white settlers in Canada, and then her mother remarried, and she married a man who had status, Mm. so Shania is legally considered a status Indian in Canada, which she has come under a lot of controversy for. Yeah, I could see, I could see why. Um, Yeah, and she's done interviews where it's like, you know, I I just grew up around... (laughs) No, the, the culture, and no. I really feel, and it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> come on, Shania, Shania. <laughs> stop it, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So there were some famous court cases that kind of changed the path of the Indian Act, or made some were responsible for the first, the early amendments to it. Um, so this is a quote from an article by Sheila Day called "Equal Status for Indigenous Women: Sometime Not Now." Quote, in the late 1970s, Sandra Lovelace from the Tobique First Nation in New Brunswick challenged the discriminatory marrying out rule in a petition to the Human, UN Human Rights Committee. In its 1981 decision, Lovelace versus Canada, the committee, the committee found that the loss of Indian women's status pursuant to Section 121B of the 1951 Indian Act violated the right to the enjoyment of cultural life under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Hmm. And then in 1971, uh, this is another quote from Sheila Day's article, Jeanette Corbier Lavelle and Yvonne Bedard brought suit under the sex equality provision of the Canadian Bill of Rights. They lost, although four out of nine judges of the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with Lavelle and Bedard. The decision became notorious and was used as, as an example of why protections for equality before the law and equal protection of the law were insufficient without guarantees of equality under the law and equal benefit of the law, guarantees which were subsequently included in the Section 15 Guarantee of Equality in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So in response to these court cases, the federal government changed the Indian Act in 1985 through Bill C-31. And the marrying out rule in the Indian Act was finally removed, but they included all these other methods of distinguishing, dis, 
distinguishing between types of status, which created different but further gender discrimination. So Bill C-31 allowed women who had previously lost their status due to the marrying out rule to regain it. However, well, first of all, it was like super difficult to do this. So like everything with the government, it was super bureaucratic. The Department of Indian Affairs required anyone to regain their status to have extensive knowledge of their family history and documentation to prove it. And this just isn't always possible. You may not have a marriage certificate issued in a remote community in the 40s to prove your grandma lost her status through the marrying out rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and then registration under the Indian Act was divided into two types, 6-1 and 6-2. And both groups had the same access to benefits, same access to the same benefits, but the difference lay uh, in who could pass on their status to their children so if a 6-1, if a person with 6-1 status had a child with a non-status person, their child would only have a right to register under 6-2 status. And if that 6-2 status child eventually had a child with a non-status person, that child would not have any indigenous status. So the distinction resulted in the loss of Indian status after two successive generations of parenting with one non-status parent. And that was known as the second generation cutoff. And it's significant because all the people that had lost their status prior to 1985 that were supposedly allowed to gain it back um, after 1985 through Bill C-31 were only allowed to attain 6-2 status, meaning Mm. that they would be unable to pass on to their child their status if they had a child with a non-status person. So the Canadian government was like, instead of doing, you know, a kind of very obvious slow genocide by whittling down who we deem status Indians. We're now going to still do that, just there's more weird, fucked up math involved. Yeah, exactly. That ties into larger conversations around, you know, Indigenous people having to prove their indigeneity and, you know, DNA stuff now or blood quantums before. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's just, again, like, these aren't Indigenous people and communities deciding how they choose to self-determine, you know, who is in their nation or tribe or band. Instead, it's just the Canadian government trying to save face while they're... This is also kind of when Canada was going through their whole making their new constitution and um, trying to pretend this was the beginning of their myth making of being like the better america and i mean fuck yeah. america like truly but yeah but fuck canada too, but fuck canada too. <laughs> fuck <the state. laughs> so they're like this will be our pr solution um yeah i know whoever wrote this policy was like oh i'm going to be very sneaky no one will ever yeah. know and it's like we see what you're doing like what <laughs> it's just yeah you know it's like oh we'll just add one layer of you know of of um yeah, like one layer of difficulty to this or or one layer of of sort of um see we're we're mm-hmm. giving you your status back, but then you can't pass it on to your children. So it's like yeah, you're effectively doing the same thing just one generation later. And I think it also this can kind of perpetuate the like settler myth that somehow by having status um you are like getting all of these benefits, you know, all the fucked up racist stuff around like, oh, you're like, you know, you don't need to pay taxes or you don't need to do this or you don't need that, which is also like super present in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and like further making this legal, you know, category seem like 
this very like coveted thing that only certain mm. people can have instead of what it is, which is the lasting effects of a colonial, you know, framework that, yeah. you know, has 200 something years of complicated history. Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact that like, you know, yeah, like um, the reality is that like um, it, there is like, some benefit to being considered status now because of all of like the fucked up history of like colonization. Um, but it sucks that you have to like advocate, like indigenous people have to advocate for themselves through this fucked up mm-hmm. legal category and basically only that fucked up legal, legal category. And then they also like seem to have to fight tooth and nail to just, exist in that category you know Mm -hmm. it's like and and depending on who who they marry or who they don't they could lose it Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and also so if you are i know like indigenous women who are status could lose their status by marrying out but presumably Mm -hmm. also if they were married to a status man who then renounced his status or was enfranchised because he went you know went to university or did whatever you know um then she would also lose her status too. exactly yeah well and also like just because they were marrying non-status men doesn't mean that they were not marrying indigenous mm-hmm. men like the thing is is that um we had a professor tell this this once i don't remember i don't know if you remember but um she was talking about how um uh when the indian agents were first put onto reservations they started handing out status cards and it was just like whoever was around mm. got a status card and that's how like the future generations you know got their status it was like oh my my parents have status you know but not everyone was like there to get the status mm-hmm. card yeah this was <laughs> and- not like a this was not an organized system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like 1857 style. Um and uh yeah, so like there were um there were indigenous men that just didn't have status because they were, they never, their families never had status, yeah. you know, like maybe they lived in an area where the Indian agent wasn't there or maybe they weren't there that day. I don't know. Yeah. But like, um, you know, there were a lot of reasons why um, someone might not have status. Um, but yeah, if, a, so if a, if a status woman married a non-status, but indigenous man, she would lose her status. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Moving on, <laughs> getting all riled up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this article I read in um, APTN from 2019 focused on the case of Sharon McIver. And Sharon McIver's case, like, uh, she has been fighting for a very long time um, around gender discrimination in the Indian Act um, and was pretty paramount in 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 major changes to it later on um but so uh yeah this um article is from 2019 it talks about um Sharon McIver's experience. Um, Quote, uh, McIver's grandmother was a member of the Lower Nicola Band who married a non-Indigenous man. As a result of prevailing rules that determined Indian status on the basis of male lineage, their daughter was ineligible for registration as an Indian. As a result, neither McIver nor her siblings were deemed to be Indians because their ineligible mother married a non-Indian. McIver would also marry a non-Indian and had three children, including Grismer. The federal government changed the Indian Act in 1985 in response to complaints and various court decisions in an effort to address the overt gender discrimination. However, McIver and Grismer argued that 
The changes didn't remedy their situation, but instead continued the existing preference for male Indians in patrilineal descent. According to their complaint, McIver can only pass on partial Indian status to her son, who also married a non-Indian, but noticed no status to her grandchildren. Her brother, on the other hand, can pass on full status to his ch- children as well as his grandchildren. Hmm. Did you see Sharon McIver when she came to Concordia? No. She gave – this was pre-COVID. She gave a talk – it must have been like 2019 um that was just like kind of about you know indigenous women's activism um mm-hmm. and i went with a class because i think we were doing a class about kind of like canada and colonization and the law and stuff and it was just she was so amazing and just a deep well of knowledge too and was just there you know no notes nothing and just was talked for like two hours um and just has like you said has been like fighting this Mm -hmm. for so long and just the amount of like politicians she had you know terrible interactions with or whatever going back you know decades and decades and decades It, it was really it was really amazing. And she's really yeah. funny. Um, oh, too. Nice. So, yeah, it was definitely one of the the event highlights mm-hmm. from my university career. Anyway, That's yes, all. it was definitely wonderful. So, yeah, fast forward to the 2000s. There were like um, several different like bills proposed, amendments, you know, like constantly trying to fix gender discrimination within the Indian Act, but always kind of failing to do so. Um, yeah, several bills were introduced, um, all of which had, have been kind of piecemeal and continue to discriminate and subdivide the types of status, including, you know, creating a 6-1-A versus 6-1-C hierarchy. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, I know. And assigning reinstated women to the status of 6-1-C, thus again, limiting their ability to pass on status through generations while always grandfathering men who previously had status into the 6-1-A category. Mm. So again, like creating this distinction, Bill S-3 was presented in 2015, I think. It was supposed to eliminate gender discrimination in the Indian Act, but didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, because it, it still had these like um, categories that, and, and hierarchies in place for types of status. So in 2017, an amendment to Bill S-3 was presented and it was referred to as 6-1-A all the way. <laughs> and it would basically collapse the 6-1-A and 6-1-C category hierarchy and would entitle Indian women and their descendants born before April 17th, 1985 to full status, full 6-1 status. So basically everyone would have 6-1 status that that couldn't. Okay. Um, And then... The amendment was not passed with Bill S-3 initially. Um, so Bill S-3 was passed and solved many of the sex-based discriminations in the Indian Act, but didn't allow women who had lost their status prior to 1985 to achieve full 6-1-A status. Okay. Um, and then I was trying to find out what happened to this amendment. And according to the government websites, all sex-based discriminations in the Indian Act had been removed, but I didn't mm. trust them. So I kept looking. <laughs> Um, and then according to the Ontario Native Women's Association, this amendment, um, the 6-1-A all the way, um, was passed in 2019. And it was mainly passed thanks to six Indigenous women who worked on this for literally 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeanette Corbier Lavelle, Yvonne Bedard, Senator Sandra Lovelace-Nicholas, Sharon McIver, Lynn Gale, and Senator Lillian Dick, as well as 
Mary 2X Early, who was the first woman on record to speak out internationally about sex-based discrimination in the Indian Act in the mm-hmm. 1960s. Wow. Yeah. So um, I guess briefly, I just kind of wanted to talk about like the effects. Obviously, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm the person to to talk about this. Like it's not my experience, but mm-hmm. um, I definitely think that it's important to you know, talk about like, it wasn't just, you know, it's not like, um, something symbolic was lost, you know, there are very real tangible effects of losing status, um, loss of kinship, ties, family, friends, ties to a geographical location and to the land and ostracization. And there's this, uh, study by Gwen Brodsky called Indian Act Sex Discrimination, and it relates the gender discrimination in the Indian Act as one of the leading causes of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls crisis and the just general increased rates of violence faced by Indigenous women in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the the loss of status um, and, like, forced removal from, from the land um, – has has had very real effects on indigenous women in Canada. Of course. Yeah. Um and then yeah, so today there continues to be problems with the Indian Act and gender discrimination as described by the um Native Women's Association of Canada. Uh, they continue to ask individuals to try to register for status to prove dates and names and locations and have documents to back it all up. So it's not like an easy process mm-hmm. still to to reinstate um, your status if you've lost it. Um, and yeah, they often were they rely on um, the like legal marriage between an individual's parents. And this quote from the Native Women's Association of Canada explains that that does not reflect the ways Indigenous relationships, including parenting and marriages, might differ from non-Indigenous cultures and societies. Mm. So relying on a, a very, like, yeah, colonial, uh, traditional, like, white Christian idea of marriage um, and, you know, having the legal documentation to back that up. Um, so if you were married or if you were raised by two Indigenous parents, but uh, they weren't married, then you might not be entitled to, to status. Mm. Um, and there, yeah, just continue to be clashes between Indian Act, like status membership systems and the traditional social and kinship systems of individual nations. So still work to do, yeah. but, um, a lot has changed in the last 150 or so. Yeah. It's like, it, it's obvious. It's so fucked up for like so many reasons, but just the, the fact of relying on people having to do this, you know, extensive bureaucratic research to prove their, you know, heritage and their community. A lot of the times where that's like, yeah, like you said, like finding records from the 40s or even earlier that you may not have. Um, Also working within a system that is actively trying to, you know, assimilate all Indigenous people into Canada. Like, it's not like these are all even if yeah even if all the records were available that doesn't mean it's going to like you know make it easy and it's just yeah it's just very frustrating and i know in certain classes that we took um specifically in like doing gender studies there was some kind of like at like minimum quota of like how much of the syllabus and the content had to be about kind of 
you know, indigenous issues in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and this should have been more, to be honest. And like some classes obviously focused more and not. Yeah. But um, for me, just coming at it as like, you know, an American who knew nothing about <laughs> Canadian history um, and not much about, you know, American history as it pertains to like indigenous people there. Like, yeah, it's just the facade of, of Canada and it's it the image it projects um yeah stupid Justin Trudeau and his stupid face being like we're <laughs> we're decolonizing yeah <laughs> um yeah <laughs> was this something like you learned when you were not like in you know elementary school or high school or mm-hmm. was it talked about especially like back where because you were in Alberta at that point right yeah, yeah. My, I feel like my experience differs a lot from like other people I know. Like other people that I know, like my partner, for instance, and and some of his friends who went to school in Ontario said that they never learned about any of this. Oh shit! But I learned definitely about like the Indian Act, about residential schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very obviously like textbook written by a bunch of mm-hmm. <laughs> old white dude history. Yeah. <laughs> um. But like, it, I mean, it gave me like sort of a yeah a bit of a baseline knowledge. All right. Well, thanks yeah, for thank tuning in. Uh, oh, also, mm. um, I I did a shout out on our social media, but just in case you miss, missed it, um, we wanted to start doing a little bit of like a listener question corner. Yes. Um, so if you have questions about something we've talked about on the show or something we haven't but relates to gender studies or sexuality studies or feminism or whatever, um, we will discuss it, maybe try to answer it. Mm. Um, but you know if it if it's way out of our wheelhouse we might not be able to <laughs> it should relate to gender studies <laughs> in some way yeah that's really all we're qualified to answer <laughs> maybe some astrology i mean yeah really i don't know pop culture opinions whatever yeah oh we can provide it we can find ways to make this also like about feminism too that's one of my favorite yes. games that and yeah. how is this person you like actually problematic Um, Ooh, yes, I love that one. Love pulling it out at parties. Let me talk about your problematic partner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if you want to send us a query, you can email gendertroublespod at gmail.com or send us a DM. Let me check those. Be nice. Yeah. Um, Or you could tweet us, I guess. So far, really, the only interactions we've had on Twitter are from TERFs that are mad at us. So if you want to tweet us something fun and cool and nice you know we wouldn't hate that yeah that would be lovely um yeah (laughs) not waking up to just just transphobia yeah turf twitter just going at you um all right uh what are we talking about next time eva next time we are going to talk about the male gaze um not gay men but the 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 male the yes you gaze with yes the The eye thing (laughs) yeah the eyes gaze go go in on that and uh like your uh domestic work episode there's going to be some fun archival 70s clips so nice tune in love it all right until next time thanks so much 